Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, February 7th, 2013. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the slate here, and <clears throat> this feels like one of those oatmeal against the wall episodes. We have those from time to time. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, I think Satan's really grand plan is to get you focused on anything other than Jesus, okay? Jesus is the last thing Satan really wants you to focus on. And what amazes me is how many churches, especially evangelical seeker-driven churches, um, you know, claim that they have Christ-centered preaching, and then Jesus, for the most part, barely gets mentioned. The pastor ends up preaching all about himself, um, you know, things like that. And, uh, and you know, there's, it's, it's, all a big distraction. And, you know, I often wonder, what have you done to Jesus? Where have you hidden him? You know, it, I, you know, I sometimes picture in these churches that, you know, there, there is, you know, Stephen Furtick or Perry Noble or Craig Rochelle or Rick Warren up there on their stage, you know, prancing around talking about themselves. And you know, this is kind of how my brain works. But, you know, I often, you know, as I'm watching these sermons <laughs> or listening to them, you know, I, I just where, where what have you done with Jesus? Have you hogtied him? Is he in the back with a you know with a muzzle on his you know on in his mouth? I mean, what you know is, he, is his mouth duct taped and you know you got ropes on him? You know, and then you know you truck him out to just every now and then you know let Jesus wave to the crowd and then whisk him away. I mean, what have you done to Jesus? And this is, I think, Satan's primary tactic. I mean, well, aside from having you question what God's word says, that doesn't work so well in con at least people who think conservatively. Now, what, what boggles my mind is how many um, political conservatives attend churches that the thing that they demand that uh, the United States government do regarding the Constitution, and that is not do monkey business with the Constitution, they end up going to churches where their pastors, they do the, their pastors do to the Bible what they won't even tolerate politicians doing to the Constitution, and I can't 
for the life of me figure out the disconnect. And, you know, it just it comes back to this tactic uh, that I believe Satan employs, and that is, is to distract you and get your eyes off Christ, not and, and replace it with just about anything. It could be um, crackpot, you know, uh, prophetic code cracking. Um, yeah, notice I put crackpot in front of it. You know, I just have no faith whatsoever in, that anybody's gonna <laughs> crack the uh, you know the code, so to speak, you know, of eschatology. And you know, because I I really think that the reason why people aren't cracking it and why those who claim that they've cracked it don't end up actually panning out is because ultimately, if you think about it, prophecy is all about Christ. And so if we're going to approach the book of Revelation, you might want to approach it Christologically, just saying. Anyway, um, so, you know, they get you, you know, so you got crackpot, you know, prophetic code crackers. You got people out there narcissizing every biblical passage known to man. And, uh, in fact, one of the things we're going to be looking at or reviewing uh, today or taking it, not, it's not a full-blown sermon review. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Um, if you've listened to the program for any amount of time, then you know that uh, one of my preaching nemesis, nemesi, you know, whatever, is Carrie Shook, um, formerly the Church Fellowship of the Woodlands. I think it's now just the Woodlands Church. But um, I have – there's a few pastors that we review here at Fighting for the Faith that actually get to me. Um, the majority of them don't. Kerry Shook is one of these guys who actually does get under my skin. And the reason why is because um, he is the only pastor that I know that could purposely try to do a manly theme and completely, at the end of it, evacuate it of anything that's actually manly. In fact, all of his sermons end up feeling like kind of a metrosexual version of an Oprah program. And so he's one of these guys that's, you know, I don't look forward to reviewing a Carrie Shook sermon. So um, he recently preached, get this, he he recently narcissized the, the story of Noah and the flood. No joke. We're going to be taking a look at that, but we're not going to do a full-blown sermon review for fear that I might blow a gasket. <laughs> Just... Yeah, you know, just saying. You know, it's just, you, like I said, there's a few people I I can't I just can't do it. Joel Osteen's actually one of these guys I can't do a full blown sermon review of Joel Osteen anymore because again I will probably come unglued <laughs> and it's just you know, so. But uh, Carrie Shook and, and Joel Osteen are kind of like uh, you know nails against the chalkboard for me. But uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, Carrie Shook narcissizing the story of Noah. And I was actually shocked. And, you know, somewhat disappointed, you know, and, and he, here's the reason why. I You know, all along, I was thinking that, that Stephen Furtick was going to be the one to really do the, f- the first major narcissistic eisegesis of the story of Noah. And so I was very disappointed that Stephen Furtick wasn't the first to do it. So he's not the innovator here. The innovator is, well, Kerry Shook. And we're going to take a look at that today. We got uh, a William Tapley update we're going to start off with. Yes, he's finally weighed in and given us a prophetic interpretation of the Super Bowl blackout. Yeah, that's right. The lights went off at the Super Bowl. They were off for 35 minutes. And uh, 
Happy, happy, joy, joy. We're going to be listening to William Tapley's prophetic insight regarding the Super Bowl blackout as well as, get this, um, his prophetic insights into one of the Super Bowl commercials. Apparently God's trying to speak to us through the Super Bowl blackout and one particular Super Bowl commercial in particular will tickle. Listen to that. And then once we're finished with all of that nonsense, we will be uh, in our sermon review today. Actually, a pretty short sermon. Uh, David Crank of Faith Church St. Louis, he's got a sermon entitled Catapult Your Existence. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. And it, here's the thing. I think each and every one of these the segments that we're going to be doing today, including the sermon review, kind of all work together. And here's the here's the thing about it. I don't necessarily in fact I, every program unless I tell you has a theme I for the most part don't tell you what the theme is although it's not hard to figure out if you can go back you can actually go backward go back in the archives and backwards engineer the themes but today we're going to be talking about it, the theme really is distractions distractions that get your eyes off of Christ distractions that get your eyes onto yourself. And you know what? Anything other than the cross and what Jesus has done for you—you crucified, risen Savior, King of Kings, Lord and Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, Emmanuel, God with us. Anything you know, Satan does not want you focused and having your faith, having Jesus Christ be the object of your faith. Satan wants your faith to be grounded on anything. But Jesus, and so he's got a thousand different, maybe 10,000, a million different distractions that uh, he employs in the church of all places in order to get your eyes off of Christ. And I think each and every one of the segments that we're going to be looking at today has something to do with that in particular, at least examples of it. So with that, we are going to um, dive into the program proper, and because of what it is that you are about to hear yeah, I I know what is coming, and I I can't stress strongly enough, especially for this first segment. You need to take all of the necessary proper precautions if you are listening to this opening segment while lifting weights at the gym, especially deadlifting or anything like that. You, you got you no, know, don't do it. I'm just telling you, bad things could ha- you could hurt yourself with this particular first segment. So here, here's our standard warning for whenever we play stuff that's just way out there. But uh, here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Just saying, you've been warned. I am a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world to its own needs, dummy serve your own needs, feed it up and not speak, grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high wire, and a fire, representatives of the games, and the government for hire, and the combat sites, let the 
Again, warned you, you, you just know what's coming. You, you will not be fine after you hear what's coming. So without any further ado, here is William Tapley to uh, give us the prophetic message that was embedded in the blackout at the Super Bowl in, um, out there in the Louisiana. Uh, here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. And for all of those of you who have been asking me, yes, the blackout at the Super Bowl was prophetic. And yes, it was from the hand of Almighty God. God was telling us that we are almost at the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation. <laughs> really? So we're, we're halfway through the seven years of tribulation. Who knew? I mean, if those were the, I mean, the first three and a half years of the tribulation seemed pretty much like a cakewalk, you know? It makes, you know, makes it so it sounds like, hey, maybe this tribulation thing won't be that bad. And he is telling us that he will decide when the midpoint of that tribulation occurs. Not some Illuminati puppets like the ones who staged the halftime of the Super Bowl. The real halftime of the Super Bowl occurred when God decided it. And at the point which God divided the game, there were two separate games, really. The first game was won by Baltimore, 28-6. to And the second game was won by the 49ers, 25-6. to Of course, when you add the two scores together, Baltimore won the Super Bowl. But the point is, the second half of the game, which corresponds to the second half of the tribulation, was much different than the first half of the game. Uh-huh. I totally missed that. In other words, the first half of the tribulation. The second half of the tribulation, Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation. And he says it will be the worst time in the entire history of mankind. Also... This blackout was a symbol for the timing of the rapture. What? Remember, Jesus said he will come like a thief in the night. He said in the night, not at the end of the night, not at the beginning of the night. He also said he will come like a bridegroom for his five wise virgins. And he comes at midnight. And that is why this power blackout in the Super Bowl occurred in the middle of the game. Now I want to take a look at a Hyundai television commercial which aired during the Super Bowl. This Hyundai Super Bowl commercial is just teeming with prophetic significance. No joke. And which I also believe is a prophecy from Almighty God. And first I want to thank the Groks who already did an analysis of this advertisement and I believe he got it partly right. The advertisement shows a young couple driving along the highway in a Hyundai, of course, and they successfully pass nine different hazards. And I believe these... Now, I saw this commercial when it aired, and 
it just never occurred to me that God was the one speaking through the Hyundai commercial to warn me about particular religious hazards and things. I just totally missed it. Hazards symbolize nine great woes which we are going to experience in the second half of the Great Tribulation. So nine hazards, nine great woes of the second half of the Tribulation, all of this from the Super Bowl and the blackout and this Hyundai commercial. First we see a somewhat overweight motorcycle rider. Oh no. And what is significant is his underwear, which is showing. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, he zoomed in. Ugh. In this close-up view, you can see he is wearing leopard print underwear. Okay, you're hurting my brain. And, of course, the leopard symbolizes Barack Obama. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so the overweight motorcycle dude with the leopard print <laughs> underwear riding a motorcycle on the... <laughs> oh, man. I do. <laughs> oh, wow. I want to congratulate the Grocks for correctly identifying the man on the motorcycle as representative of Barack Obama because of his leopard skin underwear. Now I... <laughs> I just... <laughs> How does he even take himself seriously? I don't get it. been preaching on YouTube for almost five years that Barack Obama is the leopard. It's found in Daniel chapter 7, verse number 6. And it is high time that the rest of you so-called prophets on YouTube got up to speed. Now this overweight motorcycle driver with the leopard print underwear... <laughs> this is so horrible. ...blows a kiss to this attractive woman in the passenger side of the Hyundai vehicle. This attractive woman is the most important person in this entire Hyundai advertisement. Okay. Please notice the striped shirt she is wearing. Yes, she is wearing a striped blouse shirt thing, yes. Because she wears five different ensembles in this advertisement. She She's a quick change artist? Also, especially, please note this beaded necklace. This attractive woman represents Mary. What? The beaded necklace which she is wearing, symbolizes the rosary. The five clothing ensembles which she wears throughout this advertisement symbolize five decades in a rosary. Now, in this advertisement, it is the Hyundai vehicle, of course, which successfully maneuvers around the nine hazardous obstacles. But, of course, symbolically speaking, it is Mary and her rosary which will successfully lead us around the hazardous obstacles of the Great Tribulation. The next obstacle for the Hyundai is a horse trailer. Oh, no. And the Groxt correctly associated them with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They also symbolize the... But there's only two horses in the horse trailer. Horses of the Russian invading army, as described in Daniel 
chapter 11, verse number 40. Oh. Now, I'm not sure if this license plate at the bottom has any significance. It reads BS1070. Following the horse trailer comes what is probably the most intriguing vehicle of all of the obstacles which the Hyundai must pass, and that is a pickup which is loaded ridiculously high with household items. Now, this pickup truck symbolizes Mystery Babylon. What? There are 28 items, more or less, piled on the back of this tall pickup. You counted them? And that is a reference to the 28 items associated with the Whore of Babylon in Revelation 18, verses 12 and 13. These are piled high in the shape of a very tall tree. And this is a reference to the giant tree in Daniel, chapter number 4 which also is a symbol of end times Babylon. In fact, at the very top of this pile of household goods, which is shaped like a tree, there is a small tree. And of course, this tree is about to go under this overpass. Towards the end of this ad, this tall load of household items is demolished as the pickup truck tries to go under the low overpass. This symbolizes the destruction of Mystery Babylon. <laughs> I, 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 my jaw is like on my desk. I mean, seriously, how does he take himself seriously? Hey. Which, of course, is primarily the United States. The tree at the top is knocked off. This is a reference to Daniel chapter number four. In that chapter, the great tree also symbolizes Babylon. And a judgment is pronounced on that tree by the two prophets, Enoch and Elijah. They are the watcher and the holy one who come down from heaven. In other words, this advertisement is one more warning from Almighty God about the destruction of the United States. Well, there you go. I mean, it, the prophetic writing is right there on the, not on the wall, but right there in our own commercials from the Super Bowl. You might want to stock up on spam. All right. So oftentimes I have to explain why I put William Tapley updates in here because this guy is obviously a taco short of a combo plate. And that's actually the reason why I do the William Tapley updates because there are other people whom we cover here at Fighting for the Faith who say the same outrageous, preposterous, and absurd types of things that William Tapley says, but because William Tapley is a retired um, furniture artist, you know, designer, um, it and it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, well, this guy needs help. And see, the thing is, is that though when it's Cindy Jacobs making these exact same kinds of ridiculous statements or Patricia King or Chuck Pierce or others, you know, or Pat Robertson making these exact same kinds of ludicrous statements, people listen to them and think that they're really hearing from God Almighty. They're not. And the same reason applies. All of this is a distraction. This 
all of this prophetic code cracking and people sitting there counting up the items on the back of a pickup truck on a Hyundai commercial or checking to see the prophetic significance of the leopard print underwear worn by an overweight motorcycle rider in the Hyundai commercial that just aired at the Super Bowl, the same, it's all a distraction. God isn't saying anything through that guy's leopard print underwear. Trust me, okay? What God has spoken can be found in his word, the written word of God. And that written word of God, it's all about Christ and what he's done for you. Prophetic code crackers and people who think that they can somehow divine the eschatological tea leaves, they're a distraction. They're a distraction sent by the devil to get your eyes and your faith off of Christ and put it anywhere else. And, you know, being able to say that you are the one who cracked the eschatological codes that somehow in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, very seductive temptation. So seductive that those are the rocks on which many a person has shipwrecked their faith. Something to consider. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to be listening to part of a message by Kerry Shook where he narcissistically eisegetes the story of the flood in Noah. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furrick then asks us to do the same. Uh-huh. Right. Furrick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furrick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. 
That's right. Not only did I burn my plaza Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I, I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, Satan wants your eyes focused on anything other than Jesus. He is the king of distraction, and you don't want to fall prey to that. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Are you a member of our crew yet? Well, if not, then join our crew and help support us. It's not very expensive. In fact, it's only $6.95 every month. The way you join our crew, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the center of the homepage, you will see a friendly yellow button that says, Join Our Crew. Click on it and then fill it all out. It's a great way to support us. The more people that join our crew, the more it, it makes it possible for us to budget You know uh, what we need every month and make sure we're there. It takes the peaks and the valleys, especially the valleys out of the giving, and makes it so that we can continue to make budget and continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now, next section. We're going to move right along. The next segment, I do not have Carrie Shook update music. I, I couldn't really figure out what I wanted in that department anyway. And plus I, I would make a lot of effort to not do too many Carrie Shook updates, but here's the idea. I was very tempted to play Stephen Furtick's uh, update music. And that's uh, you're so vain. You probably think the, the Bible's about you. And here's the reason why is because Carrie Shook is basically has basically taken a page out of Stephen Furtick's uh, Bible twisting manual, okay? Using Stephen Furtick's favorite Bible twisting technique, what we lovingly refer to here at Fighting for the Faith as narcissus. Narcissus, by the way, is two words stuck together. Narcissistic, you all know what that means, self-love. And eisegesis, means, meaning to read something into the scriptures. Now, you don't want to do... Eisegesis. If you are going to rightly handle God's word, you do not want to put things into God's word that are not there. That's that's bad. It's it's es no bueno. Okay. Instead, a a pastor's job is to exegete, to read out what God the Holy Spirit has had written for our edification, growth in in Christ there in Scripture. Okay. Now, I've done some pieces regarding uh, narcissistic eisegesis, and let me give you, again, you know, from my Letter of Mark blog, there's a, uh, a blog post called How to Narcissist Any Bible Story. Here's, here's what it is. Here, okay, um, this is what I wrote. There's an epidemic of narcissistic eisegesis, a.k.a. narcissism, infecting the churches in America today. Pastors and Bible teachers have mastered the art of allegorizing all of the characters and details of every Bible story in order to make the stories about you. Uh, therefore, if uh, I, I've decided to give a little how-to advice regarding this Bible twisting technique in the hopes that by doing so, you'll see the obvious problems with this way of approaching the biblical text. So here we go. How to narcissist any Bible story in four easy steps. So primary assumption. So this is not step number one. You have to have this assumption before you apply the four steps. Every Bible story is about you. And since you struggle with setbacks, problems, and challenges to keep you from achieving your maximal greatness, that means that the Bible is really all about giving you a roadmap that you can follow in order for you to achieve your dreams and God-given destiny. Okay? 
Notice any problems with that particular uh, uh, primary assumption? You should, but that's the primary assumption. Okay, so step number one, you read a Bible story. Step number two, identify the hero and the villains in the story. Step number three, identify yourself with the hero who also happens to be on a journey towards uh, greatness and achieving his God-given destiny just like you. And identify your current problems or challenges or setbacks with the villain in the story. Okay, so you know problems, challenges, and setbacks would be like, oh, I have too much uh, credit card debt. Oh, I have a challenging marriage. My wife and I aren't really getting along. Oh, my children aren't behaving properly. Or um, I'm not advancing in my career as I had hoped, and I'm, I'm dissatisfied with my life. Um, you know things like that. Okay, so those would be the setbacks that are keeping you from achieving your God-given destiny. And so step number four, identify the key action taken by the hero to defeat the villain, allegorize that action by calling it a principle, and then challenge people to apply this principle in their lives in order to defeat the problems, challenges, and setbacks in their lives so that they can achieve greatness. Now, Today's theme, like I've been pointing out, is all about how you're being distracted. By the way, I wrote this back in December of uh, 2012, December tw- uh, 4th of uh, 2012. So this is not something I've written recently, but I've, I wrote it specifically due to the fact that there, you know, this is the recurring problem we're seeing in so much seeker-driven preaching, which, by the way, um, back... <laughs> Back at the beginning of the year, I actually wrote another blog post called Help Stephen Furtick Pick the, the Topic of His Next Best-Selling Book. And, um, and it was, it's a poll. It's up there right now if you want to look at it. And, uh, and I, I'm, in fact, I've already expressed the satisfaction and surprise and shock that Stephen Furtick wasn't the first person to narsajit the story of Noah. In fact, I, I really thought he would do it. He would be the first to do it. And uh, in our, the little poll, it's at my Letter of Mark blog. It, you know, uh, the question is, which Old Testament character should Stephen Furtick narsajit next Okay, for you know, an upcoming book? And the first one is, Noah, how to build your ark and float above the floods of destruction in your life. That was the subtext that I wrote at the beginning of this month. Okay, And the reason for that is because Stephen Furtick is the king of the Narsages. Now, coming back full circle here. Okay, So what you're about to hear is Carrie Shook of the Woodlands uh, Church out there in the Woodlands, Texas, narcissistically eisegeting the story of the flood and the name of the sermon, get this, is the Flood of Blessing. Remember the steps for narcissistic eisegesis? And here we go. Here's Carrie Shook about to narcissist the story of the flood and Noah. Now, I will be taking time to at least counter-teach it during the segment so that you understand what's really going on with this flood story and what it foreshadows and prefigures. Here we go. Life lessons from the life of Noah. And one of the most important but overlooked lessons in Noah's story is that when God rescues you, he rescues you for a reason. When God takes you through a problem, he gives you a higher purpose. And that was certainly the case with Noah. God told Noah to build a rescue ship because a worldwide flood of destruction was on its way. And everyone who would enter the ark of God's mercy and grace would be rescued. But only Noah and his family believed God and obeyed. They entered the ark, and God brought them through the flood. And when God rescues you, he rescues you for a reason. He brings you out of the mess to give you a mission. And he brought Noah and his family through the flood to give them a future. So let's look at what that is. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. 
And there's just one verse is our key verse today, but it's a powerful verse. So would you stand in honor of God's word? And They're going to stand for one verse. Just read it out loud with me. In Genesis 9-1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Lord, I know that you want to bless us and you want to rescue us through the floods that come into our lives. And so I pray that you would show us today how you take those floods that seem so negative that come our way and you turn them, Lord, into really a way to get to the place of blessing in our lives. So help us see that. And I pray you would change our hearts and our lives from your word today so that we could be in a position to receive your unmerited blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. And I want you to underline the phrase, God blessed Noah. It's So notice, um, <clears throat> apparently we're at the tail end of the story, you know. Right there at the, I mean, we're not going to go into all the thorny details about the flood and, you know, stuff like that. Because <laughs> no, that's not the story he really wants to tell. Okay? N- notice what he's doing. He's going he's gonna to allegorize the flood now. The flood is allegorized, and basically these are the floods of destruction in your life. And, and God wants to give you blessings. See, God brought Noah through the, the flood, right? And then blessed him. See, God wants to do the same to you because there's floods coming in your life and God wants to bless you too, just like he blessed Noah. (sighs) It's interesting that Noah had to go through the flood to arrive at the place of blessing. He, He had to go through the flood to arrive at the place of blessing. You are aware that every single human being and every single animal that was not on the ark died. Okay. The the flood is all about God's judgment. Okay. And we're going to turn this into an allegory about some kind of floods in my life. Really? And that's another very powerful lesson from Noah's story. And it's this. Your greatest barrier is often the bridge to your greatest blessing. So the the flood that killed, that wiped out everything on the planet, that was a bridge to Noah's greatest blessing. Good night. How do you take the flood and make it so trivial? The greatest barrier you're facing right now is the very bridge that God wants to use to get you to the place of blessing. So your greatest obstacle that you're facing right now is really your greatest opportunity. It's just brilliantly disguised as a problem. But God wants you to see it. You see, God didn't take Noah out of the flood. He had to go through the flood. He didn't take Noah out of the flood? What? Again, all of humanity... Every animal died, okay? This is a horrifying, sobering picture of God's wrath and judgment. And you're talking about it like, you know, that you know, that setback I might have in my life. That rises even allegorically to the same level as God destroying the earth. You're joking, right? 
God didn't take Noah out of the flood. He just used the flood to get Noah to where he needed to be, that place of blessing. And many times I pray, God, take this problem out of my life. And God says, no, I want to use the problem to take you where you need to be, to that place of blessing. And without this problem, I know you would never go there. And you would miss out on my best for you. And so this problem is in your life, but this... you. So if God didn't take Noah through the flood, Noah would have missed out on God's best for him? Where are you getting this? This problem leads you to your purpose. This barrier is a bridge to my blessings. But you need to see that. The flood was really a bridge to get Noah and his family to God's place of blessing. Oh my. Okay. We're going to pause the sermon right here, and I need you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking first at Genesis chapter 5. I want to show you a couple of verses before we go into chapter 6, and then we'll take a look at the story a little bit here. Now, review, not a lot's happened except for God spoke the world and the universe into existence in six days and uh, created man in the image of God. What's important to note here is is that the due to the fact that man was created in the image of God and that God that man was originally intended to have dominion over the earth that uh, you know and this in a sinless way that uh, you can you can make the case that God's intention was that humanity would be you know kind of the proxy there representing a good perfect you know image of God represented you know a representative of God in taking care of and uh, and you know being studious over God's creation that's the idea but in Genesis chapter 3 Adam and Eve flat out disobeyed God they were deceived by Satan who showed up as the serpent uh, asked if God really said if you know you can't eat from any tree in the garden Eve totally got schnookered by the uh, the serpent and disobeyed God she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, gave some to her husband who was with her. Both of them fell, and both of them and the serpent all received judgments from God. You know, for Adam, you know, he would have to bring forth food by the by toil and sweat and working the earth that had now in the ground that had now been cursed with thorns. Eve was going to bring forth children with great pain, and and things are just really bad. But in there. In Genesis chapter 3, you have this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's the uh, Proto-Euangelion, that first little gospel right there, that God was going to bring somebody who was going to be a savior to deliver them from everything that has happened. And, uh, you know, you get into chapter 4, and the first two sons of uh, Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel, Cain rises up and slaughters his brother Abel because of you know just jealousy over the fact that they had brought sacrifices to God and and God looked favorably on Abel's sacrifice and not on Cain's and Cain just you know his response was to burn with anger and you know bring him out into a field and just murder him absolutely slay him in cold blood and he goes on to uh, you know be punished by God sent away and had a mark put on him so that no one would kill him if they found him. And, you know, things are not going good. And then 
you know, so you, in chapter four, you get the story of Cain and Abel, and then you get a listing of the descendants of, uh, of Cain and their exploits. And in chapter five, you then have the book of the generations of Adam. Something very important to note in Genesis chapter five. Um, I'll start at verse one and point it out to you as I read. Here's what it says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man and they when they were created. In fact, in, in the Hebrew, it says on the day when they were created. And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. That's the important statement here. Okay? In verse 1, it says that God made man in his likeness. But then when we get to verse 3, Adam fathered children in his own likeness. Not in the in the likeness or image of God, but in the likeness and image of fallen Adam and Eve. Okay? And so there is a proliferation of evil on the earth as human beings procreate and and start to fill the earth. And we find out that that God is grieved by what has happened. So fast forward to Genesis chapter 6. I'll start at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, let me do a little fast forward here. I'm going to pull up another tab in my computerized Bible and go back to Hebrews 11. Okay, this is important. How did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Okay, the scriptures tell us. We don't even have to guess. Okay, and here's the idea. One of the interpretive principles, if you're going to rightly handle God's word, is that you always interpret scripture in light of the rule of faith. And this is the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Salvation is not by works. It's not by obedience. Salvation is by faith. Now, there's other passages we can bring to bear. In fact, I'm going to just tease this out a little bit from Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... It is impossible to please God. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. 
by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, here's the idea. Here we read in Genesis that God was grieved that he had made man. Grieved and, and, and really regretted it. Okay? And it's just, it's looking really bad. He's sorry that he's made them and he's going to blot out man from the face of the earth. And then we have verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How? Noah was a man of faith. Noah trusted the Lord. That's how. Okay? So this is a story about faith. First and foremost. But on top of it, this is also a story and a foreshadowing of God's coming judgment. And even Christ himself is foreshadowed in the ark. I'll explain as we go. So these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So whatever the 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 pre-flood earth was like, at least in human society, one of the important and kind of you know it, things that you pick up here is that there was a lot of violence, okay? Murder seems to be running rampant, a lot of violence towards men, okay? Man-on-man violence. So God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping things of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall uh, shall come into you, and, and you shall keep them alive, or shall come to you and keep them alive. Also take every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Okay, Why? Because Noah had faith. This is what Hebrews 11 makes clear. So then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you are a, you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, a male and its mate, a pair of, of animals that are not clean, a male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens, also a male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. 
For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they all went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as the Lord had commanded him and the Lord himself shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. I'm going to stop here for a second, okay? When you read the sermons of the ancient church fathers, they have absolutely no problem identifying the ark itself as foreshadowing Christ. In fact, one of the church fathers, he, he, the name of him eludes me. I was reading one of his sermons. Oh, it's got to be a couple years ago now. He had a great metaphor here. Okay. And the idea was, is that he, he said that the door of, you know, of the uh, ark, he, he saw a similarity between the door of the ark and the, the wound in Christ's side that was put there by the spear of the Roman soldiers. Here's how it works. This, you know, this, what we're looking at here is a real historical event that literally resulted in every human being except for Noah's family being destroyed, killed, swept away in the flood. They were wiped off of the earth. This is God's judgment in action. And folks, that's the warm-up, okay? Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ himself again, is going to return in glory to judge the living and the, and the dead. And on the day when he returns, the earth is going to be destroyed not by water, but by fire. There is a day coming when Christ will come and execute this exact same kind of judgment against the inhabitants of the planet that he created. Okay? And that's, if we're here on that day, that means you and me. Now, in the days of Noah, the only way to survive the flood of God's wrath was to be in the ark, the great boat of safety that saved Noah and his family. 
on the coming day of judgment, the only way to survive the flood of God's wrath that will be released on the earth is for you to be in Christ. You get it? That's the picture here. So the ark itself in this story foreshadows not just God's future judgment on the earth, but again, the ark itself is a foreshadow and a picture of Christ. That's what's going on in this text. Remember, Scripture's all about Jesus. Okay, So this is a story of God's wrath and salvation. God put them into the ark and shut the door. Christ puts you into himself when you're brought to repentance and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are in Christ, you will survive that horrible, terrible, awful, and awesome day that is coming. The soon-to-be-released wrath of God against all of the earth. This is what Scripture teaches us. The flood teaches us. This has nothing to do with you overcoming financial debt, a bad hair day, dissatisfied uh, dissatisfaction in your in your marriage, children who are disobedient, or anything of the sort. This is a picture of the coming wrath of God, played out in human history's past and soon to be played out in it in the future. That's what this story is about. It's not about God taking you through troubles and tribulation as a bridge to your blessing. That's gobbledygook. And that anybody who calls himself a Christian pastor would treat this story this way is beyond blasphemous. Absolutely beyond blasphemous. Let me continue reading, though. I don't want to leave you in the middle of the flood. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. By the way, um, how do I know that this is a real historical event? Real simple. Jesus himself makes it clear, and he believed and taught, that the, the flood, the worldwide flood of Noah, was real history. And I don't have better credentials than him. In fact, nobody has better credentials than Jesus. He rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I'm going to go with his view of the flood. And anybody who contradicts Jesus' view, as far as I'm concerned, they ain't got the credentials to contradict Jesus. And for them to do so or think that they do, well, that's just silly and foolish. Okay, we continue. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains and the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind. Yeah, well, in fact, the way the Hebrew here, here, it's like all of the language is the same language used in Genesis, you know, in Genesis 2 and 1 regarding the creation of the world. So we're seeing the undoing of creation itself. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left 
and those who were with him on the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for one hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the, deep, of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the water receded from the earth continually. And the end of, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day, of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, and he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Now, by the way, <clears throat> the way this is written, there's, a, there's like a picture here that harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, talking about how the Spirit hovered over the deep, okay? And the, the, in fact, the, the verb there in the Hebrew is fluttered. How the spirit fluttered over the deep. So there's some kind of a picture going now back to Genesis chapter 1 with this dove fluttering over the waters of the flood, you know, that kind of tells you it's an allusion to kind of a new creation. That just, just is a theme I just want to point it out. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, from off of the earth. Notice here, okay, <laughs> you know, we, this is history that t goes down to the month and to the day, okay? In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and then the Lord, then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah 
and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives you shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your life blood I will require a, rec- a reckoning. And from every beast I will require it. From every And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So that's the story of the flood. This is not a a story that you can glean for principles on how to overcome the floods in your life. Not at all. Instead, this points us to the very real flood that we all face, and that's the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God against humanity for their sin and rebellion against God. And the only way to survive that soon-to-be-released flood of God is for you to be in the ark, and the ark is Jesus Christ. That's what the story is about, and to preach it any other way is to miss the whole point altogether. But we continue with Kerry Shook's sermon entitled, The Flood of Blessing. Here we go. Now, God told Noah, I brought you through the flood to bless you so that you could bless the world. And God still works that way. That's God's plan for our lives. He wants to bless you so you... Seriously, I mean, we just started this. Really, where in this story... I just read the whole thing. God said, I'm going to bring you through the flood so I can bless you so that you can be a blessing for everybody else. There's not a single passage that says that anywhere in Genesis. You can bless others. He wants to bless you so you can be a blessing. That's the only reason God blesses us. If God has blessed you and he's blessed all of us in so many different ways, he's blessing you so you can be a blessing to make an impact in the world. Now, Noah didn't earn or deserve God's blessing. It was all from God's grace and mercy. God gave him the blueprint for the ark. God gave him the strength to build the ark. And so Noah didn't earn or deserve God's blessings. It was unmerited blessings and grace and mercy. But Noah did put himself in position to receive the unmerited blessings of God. Noah did... Really, where in the story does it say that Noah put himself in position to receive God's blessings? What is that? Step into the ark. Noah and his family did choose to obey God and step into this ark and put themselves in a position where God could use the flood to be a bridge to get them to the place of blessing. I'm like, I don't even know what to say. This is so blasphemous. Noah got into the ark, and he obeyed God to let God use the flood to be a bridge to his blessings. Seriously, I mean, I want to ask, what are you smoking in their lives. I can't earn or deserve God's blessing in my life. It's all from his grace. There's nothing that you can do or I can do to deserve the unmerited blessings of God that he gives us in our lives. But we can put ourselves in position to receive 
His unmerited grace and mercy. We can't put ourselves in a position so that we're in a place that we can receive His grace and provision and blessings in our lives. I call this the principle of positioning. We see it in Noah's story. We see it all through the Old Testament. Really, where in the Noah story do we see the principle of positioning? There was a time when the king of Judah was being attacked by three kings, three armies. And so he was overwhelmed and outnumbered. But God revealed to him this principle of positioning. It's in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. God said, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Underline that phrase, take up your positions. This is the principle of positioning. God says, no, it's not. Okay, this, this, we're going to blow this right out of the water. Okay, three rules are the three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis context, context, and context. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Well, let's take a look at this story a little bit here. I mean, I'm, I'm a little, uh, verse 5, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. Let's take a look at what's going on here. So it says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in its sanctuary for your name, saying, if, if a disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab, Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. So basically, the sons of Ammon, the men of Ammon and Moab, they've risen up against Israel and are threatening to basically wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so here, Jehoshaphat is praying before God and making his petition known and reminding God of their history and his promises. Verse 12, Our O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde, and it is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says Yahweh to you, do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. 
and you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Now, when we read this in context, great story, by the way. Let me let me read Jehoshaphat's response. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they fell down before Yahweh, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. Mm. Great story of God's deliverance and salvation. Okay, now let's come back to verse 17. Okay, Kerry Shook in the sermon is claiming that 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17, is teaching us the principle of position, to which I say, pa, it's not saying that at all. This was a specific part of a specific prophecy given to Judah in a time of need when Ammon and Moab were, had risen up and were about you know, sending an army to basically besiege them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And this was a specific prophecy given by the Lord through Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. That's what's going on here. And this is a specific message for them. There's no principle that we have to apply here uh, regarding the principle of position. Let me, again, let me read the, uh, the, the prophecy. I'm going to go back to the beginning of uh, verse 15. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Yep. See, and by the way, I should note this here. Second Chronicles chapter 20. How many times is Noah referenced? Not once. No, There's no reason to believe that Noah practice the principle of position that this is just a flat out narcissistic Bible twist on the part of Carrie shook. We continue. You can't earn or deserve this victory. I'll win the victory for you, but you need to take your position. You need to take up your position to be in position to receive my unmerited victory and blessing and favor in your life. That's not what this passage says at all. In fact, that passage basically said, just hold your position. Stay put. God's going to fight the battle for you. The principle of positioning has been the key to my life and the key to this church. We don't earn or deserve anything that God does for us. I can't earn or deserve a miracle from God. I can't earn or deserve God's grace. It's all about His grace and His mercy. But I can't put myself in position to be able to receive the unmerited grace and blessings of God. Again, weird because that passage isn't teaching that at all. There are three parts to this principle of positioning. Really? Three parts to an out-of-context verse that you've developed into a principle regarding positioning that you claim Noah used. Uh huh. First is what I call the walk. I have to step into the place of blessing by obeying God. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience blocks blessing. Fine. If that's how you're going to have it, then you can't possibly ever be blessed by God. 
Because God doesn't consider obedience to be something that's occurring if you're just 50, 20, 30, 10, 5% obedient. Obedience is not graded on a curve. It's graded on 100%. That's the score. If you want to be, if you want to earn God's blessing by obedience, you must be 100% obedient to God's law. Otherwise, you're disobedient. That's God's standard, not mine. It's as simple as that. Let's go back to when we first met Noah in Scripture in our study in Genesis 6-9. We've looked at this before, but it's so important. It says, This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah walked with God. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He kept taking steps of obedience. Now look at Joshua 1-8. It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Underline that. For- okay, Joshua 1.8. The book of Joshua has nothing to do with the story of Noah. And this is hundreds of years later. Okay, Joshua 1.8 is referencing the book of the Torah, the law of God. How, how you connect this with Noah, I have no clue. The Torah was not revealed and the Mosaic covenant was not struck until long after Noah had died. Long after. And the purpose of the law was not to save them at all. That was... uh, This guy has no clue what he's doing here. Phrase, be careful to do everything written in it. Obedience brings blessing. This is a key part to the principle of positioning. God will show me something that's clearly in his word. And then I have to take a step of obedience and obey. And then he blesses. And then he'll show me another step that I'm to take. And I take that next step. And then he blesses. And then he'll show me another step to take. Notice the direct revelation here. What about the Ten Commandments? How about those ten steps? How are we doing on that? In my walk with him. And then I take that step and obey. And he blesses. And then he shows me another step to take, and I take that step, and he blesses. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writing a harshly worded letter to the Judaizers in Galatia. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law Or by hearing with faith. By the way, the answer is hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Answers hearing with faith, by the way. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that means to declare righteous, the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
4. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified or declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, those the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Yeah. Um, Carrie Shook's so-called principle of position is nothing more than him trying to smuggle back in, well, works righteousness and a version of the Judaizing heresy. We continue. All steps of obedience. And before you know it, you're where you never dreamed you could be. You see, it's not some blind leap of faith where you just jump off the cliff and go, hey, God, catch me, I trust you. That's not the way God works. He doesn't say jump off the cliff in a blind leap of faith. He just says take the next baby step of obedience. Take the next step. And when you take the step, you open. Really, where does it say this in Scripture? I just read something that completely contradicts that. Opens the door. That's how God has worked in this church for the last 17 years. You know, when Chris and I tell people how God placed that dream on our hearts to plant a church that would help people experience Christ rather than religion. And we resign from our tradition. Well, they're not experiencing Christ at all in this sermon. You are not even pointing them to Christ. You're pointing them to themselves. Traditional church, and we stepped out in faith and came out here with no money, no members, and no place to meet. And then, you know, after you talk about that, people go, wow, you must have great faith. It's like, no, not at all. We just have a little bit of faith. But we've chosen to place it in a great big God. And he always just says, take the next baby step. That's what he, he would do. He would say, so they don't have great faith. They have great obedience, apparently, to all these little baby steps. Say, Carrie, Chris, take the next baby step. And then he would open up a door. He would say, take the next step. And we go, oh, I'm scared to take that step, God. I mean, this is a big step to us, even though it seems like a little baby step. And this has absolutely nothing to do with the story of Noah, by the way. To you, and we'd take the next baby step, and then God would part the waters. And then the next step and the next step. And then we looked back and we said, wow, we're where we never dreamed we could be. But if God would have just said, jump and take this giant leap out into the dark, we probably would have never done it. We would have never had the faith to do it. But God says, I'll work with what I've got here. Got a little bit of faith? Okay, take this baby step. And I would take the next step and God would open a door. Take the next step and God... So apparently the story of Noah is about Carrie Shook. Okay. God would open a door. Take the next step and God would open the door. Now you can't wait until everything is just perfect out there because you'll never take a step. You just obey God when he tells you to do something through his word or as he impresses it upon your heart as you're praying. Direct revelation. And you're seeking him and you're spending time with him and you're coming to weekly worship and you're staying in tune with him. Then God will show, show you clearly what your next step is. And when you take the next step, then he blesses. But you have to take the next step before he opens up the blessing. It's not like, oh, there's a big place of blessing. Oh, yeah, it's easy. I'm going for it. No, you just take the next step. Now, if I come to the place where I say, well, God, I don't really like this next step. 
I don't really understand this step, and it doesn't make much sense to me. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, God. So could you explain to me this next step, maybe over the next five or six years, and then maybe I'll do it? If I stop taking those steps of obedience, then God blesses where I should have been because I take myself out of position for God's unmerited blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there isn't a single passage of Scripture that says that. Not even one. He's totally jumped the tracks. He's freewheeling it, off-roading. He's not actually teaching what Scripture teaches at all. The Bible in Second Chronicles does not teach the principle of position, nor did Noah apply it at all. Noah pleased God and was found righteous in him because he trusted and had faith in the Lord. And the good news for you and me is that by faith we are justified If we have faith in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are declared righteous and are pleasing in God's sight for the sake of Christ. His righteousness is given to you as if you are the one who lived it. Can't add to Jesus' perfect, sinless perfection now, can you? Nope, you can't. Trust Him. Trust and believe in Him. This other stuff, by the way, the Noah story, it's not about you overcoming floods of disaster in your life at all. No, it's about foreshadowing salvation in Christ. It's all what it's about. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick commercial break and when we come back sermon review heading to st louis to hear david crank um i don't know what he's talking about but we'll figure it out when we get back hang on we'll be right back relevance schmelevance we preach christ crucified for our sins you're listening to fighting for the faith pirate christian radio theater presents death of a salesman are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. 
Oh, hey. I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pom with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. Not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no. I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. Got to do this right. Hang on a second here. All right. Here we go. The Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Um, t- today's sermon, I don't even know what this is. Business pep talk? I'm not sure. Um, it comes to us via Faith uh, Church in St. Louis. David Crank presiding. The name of said um, uh, feel-good oration is entitled Catapult Your Existence. Catapult your existence. Now, remember our theme today, being distracted away from Christ. Okay, William Tapley is supremely distracted away from Christ. Carrie Shook has no clue what's going on in the story of Noah, and rather than preaching Christ from the story of Noah, well, distracted us to make us think that it was about ourselves. Well, whatever this sermon is about... (laughs) Just think of it this way. It's going to be a distraction. That's all I need to say. It's not very long, and I consider that to be merciful. (laughs) So, let me kill the music, and without any further ado, here is David Crank and um, his uh, sermon entitled, Catapult Your Existence. Here we go. Somebody gave me this book a while back on the slight edge, and, and uh, it, it's about three or four years ago, and it's a phenomenal book. I think if you... A book called The Slight Edge? I'm going to have to Google that. Here. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. One of the things I want to point out is they talk about the easy things to do and the easy things not to do. 95% of the people in life don't achieve their dreams because they do the easy, well, I don't know, I'll take the easy way out. For instance, yesterday when we were going to the gym to work out. All right, hang on a second here. Don't achieve their dreams. Oh, no. Gasps. You know, I can hear the collective. <gasps> oh, no, that sounds horrible. Can you imagine what would happen if most of the people in the world don't achieve their dreams? <laughs> it would be just terrible. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. The by the way, the name of the book is "The Slight Edge." It's written by Jeff Olson, and um, it's, there's a couple of different versions out there. The original version, the subtitle was "Secret to a Successful Life." Uh-huh. The revised edition, Turning Simple Disciplines into Massive Success. Yeah. Um, hmm. It um, has nothing to do with scripture at all. I mean, you might as well be given instructions on how to throw a curveball. I mean, that might be useful for those of you who want to play baseball. I mean, wouldn't that be a great time to spend your church time, you know, with a pastor? You know, now here's how you throw a, you know, a four seam fastball, and here's how you throw a knuckle curveball. Although there's not a lot of guys who can pull that off. Yeah, that would be some useful stuff right there. So now we're preaching about a book called The Slight Edge: How to ha- the Secrets to a Successful Life. I-, I thought the job of the pastor was to preach the. You know, the word, the Bible, you, you're familiar with that? We continue. Right next to the gym, as fate would have it, is my favorite Mexican food restaurant. Let's just thank God for tacos right now. It's just unbelievable. It's very easy for me to just go in there and eat a bag of chips. Anybody ever experienced that where you just couldn't stop? Come raise your hand. I know you did. You can't. It's very easy to overeat. It's very easy to go work out. It's, it's not that hard. Just just to let you all know, um, I know a thing or two about counting calories. I've become really good at it lately. Um, having a, a bag of potato chips doesn't necessarily automatically mean you've overeaten. depends on how many calories are in the bag of chips, and you just add that up to your total that you have for the day. And as long as you don't go over your total, you know, you can, have, you can enjoy a bag of potato chips. You know, it's not exactly the best use of calories, but you still, you know, you don't you don't have to say, oh, no, the day I just blow my diet. No, you haven't. Count the calories. How many of y'all have experienced this to where you go work out and the next thing you know, while you're working out, you know, 30 minutes later, maybe you're done, 40 minutes later, you're done, and you just feel better because you did it. The easy to do's, the easy not to do's. So, so in this book, Over Tama, I begin to read it and apply it to my life. And here's one line I want to read. Here's the problem. Every- so he's going to read a line from the book, The Slight Edge. Uh-huh. Every action that is easy to do is also easy not to do. Life is about choices that we face every day and every hour. A simple positive action repeated over and over will bring success. A simple error in your judgment repeated over and over will bring a, a detrimental fault to your life. When, when I watched... Now, was that the the English Standard Version uh, translation of the book, The Slight Edge, or was that the New Living translation? I'm a little confused. People sometimes uh, do, you know, stupid stuff, and you think, you know, you, none of us wake up one day and realize, today is the day I'm going to wreck my whole life. For instance, in ministry, you hear, this guy had an affair, and uh, you're like, how did that happen? He just didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to ruin my whole career. Today's the day I'm going to just hose everybody. I'm going to lose my wife and my job. It's just over. No, you start making small little decisions, slight decisions that lead you down the wrong road. Now, for instance, in Michael's case, uh, he, he looks great with his... Yeah, by the way, um, Scripture says the reason why you sin is because you're a sinner, because you're born dead in trespasses and sins. It's not that you, it's, you know, a cumulative collection of a bunch of slight little um, decisions that you've made. You know, that was the, the result of a decision made by Adam and Eve, and now we are, uh, well, corrupted in our nature. 
We can sure enough. In fact, some of the single girls on our staff when we were doing the creative meeting, is it over the top to have him come down? There's a lot of meetings about this meeting. Should he come down? Should the lights be down? Should he take his shirt off? Should he leave his shirt on? And all the single girls who work at the church are like, you know, I think you ought to just take his shirt off because it's just, it's more of who he is. <laughs> and so, for instance, he has a six-pack. I got a keg. There's a difference between what we both have. But there's a reason why he arrived at his assignment. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have 8,760 you know, hours in a year. But what are we doing with that time? The slight edge makes the difference. Uh, do you know that studies have reported in, in this book right here on the slight edge, it is a proven fact that you will, and I, I took it out of the book. Now, I just want to let you all know that the author of the slight edge, uh, that would be, um, let's see, Jeff Olson, okay? He was not one of the inner circle, you know, the 12 that Jesus chose, uh, you know, to teach and instruct and raise up uh, that would eventually become apostles. Yeah, I, I hate to break it to you, but Jeff Olson, he's not that old. And um, he was not alive at the time of Peter, James, and John, and, you know, Bartholomew, and guys like that. No, and so... His book, The Slight Edge, although it looks like it's not that long, um, doesn't actually appear in your Bible. Yeah, I know. So he's not a disciple. Um, I doubt this is even a Christian book. So um, I find it to be very distracting that we're learning. You know, I mean, I mean, serious. I mean, up to this point in the sermon, David Crank has read to us a passage from the slight edge, but we haven't actually heard anything of, from God's word yet. I'm sure he'll get to it though. You know, that, did you know the studies have proven that your income will tend to be the same as or average as your 10 friends incomes. That's why oftentimes I say, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. Proverbs thirteen twenty says this. Okay. Now we're finally getting a verse. Become wise by walking with the wise Hang out with fools and watch your life fall to pieces. Now, don't you think it's foolish to, you know, to sit under the instruction of a pastor who's teaching from a business book rather than God's word? I mean, that's something to consider. The one's translation says the wise people become wiser. When you hang around certain people, it influences the way you think. Now, I have a question. Do you all wish sometimes you were more connected so you could hang around some people that were on the next level? You know, he's like, man. Hang out with people who are on the next level. Uh, you're talking about the saints who've gone to heaven before us? No, I think he's talking about successful people here. Hmm. By the way, little statistics. Are you ready? 100% of all people who are not, who, who are not brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will spend eternity in hell. That's a pretty interesting statistic, don't you think? I wish I was more connected. Well, let's, let's back up. Seven years ago, uh, you know, my dad died about almost eight years ago now, and about seven years into it, you know, we, I was pastoring his church, and there was 200 people in Fenton, good 200 people, great folks, nice church, but it was the same as it always had been. I was thinking over in Fenton, I wish I could hang out with Zig Ziglar and Peter Lowe and Tony Robbins. And some Zig Ziglar and Tony Ro Anthony Robbins, the Buddhist motivational speaker. Why? What? 
one of these influential communicators because that's what I felt like I was supposed to be. Like he was a fighter, I was going to be a communicator. I don't want to be an average communicator. I wanted to be a good, gifted communicator that could bring God's Word and string it through to where people could actually apply what they hear on Sunday on Monday. So I th- That would actually require you to open up God's Word and preach it. So far, we've got one out-of-context verse and a passage from The Slight Edge, which is not even a book of the Bible. I thought, man, I wish I was connected. I wish I was connected. And then I come to find out I, I, I moved, and when I moved, I had a high-speed Internet, which is a connection. And this connection to the Internet allowed me to go on just, believe it or not, most of my training in public speaking came from YouTube. I would YouTube Tony Robbins. I would watch how he held his hands, how he talked. I'd watch Peter Lowe, Zig Ziglar. I even watched Bill Clinton and the way he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I watched George Bush, which I love George Bush, but he's the world worst, you know, public figures like, hey, I'm going to give health care for the seniors and the senioritas. And uh, what? what, uh." I watched the different people communicate. I took and modeled their behavior and style. I even watched Tyler Dagan Nights where the guy won and he's like, what do I do with my hands? Remember that? Some of y'all like, we're in church. I'm not going to admit to it. I know you saw the movie. Hey, my hands, what do I do? And so because it becomes annoying. So if you hone whatever it is you do. Now, now if you're a note taker, you ought to write this down. Get around people who do what you do, but do it better than you do. Get around people who do what you do, but they do it better than you do. In other words, hone your craft. Get around some people that will stretch your capacity in business. They'll, They'll teach you how to be a good dad, a good mom, a good communicator, a good salesperson. Get around those people. And at first, you might not be able to get around them because you don't have any connections, but if you've got an internet connection, you can get around them by reading, by listening. You know, I, I have a picture here that I thought was quite interesting, and, and it shows the power of influence and people taking advantage of what you do. Uh, there's a puppy underneath <laughs> while the little duck is like, hey, that is my position. Anybody in here ever felt like somebody took your spot? Make sure you're looking out in life for those people who are robbing the position in which you're supposed to be in. You have a God-given assignment. God has a plan for your life. You've been seated with him in heavenly places. God has a, a specific spot for you to be at so that you can be a testimony of his goodness. How do you do that? It's by building your life on the right foundation. It is the slight edge. Matthew 7, verse 24. Check this out. Building your life on the slight edge is what God wants you to do, but that book just came out in 2011. How did the church survive all of these millennia without the book, The Slight Edge? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him into a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the flood. Now, I want to point something out here. This verse that he's reading from the uh, tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, if he really wants to apply this particular passage, then it would require him to actually teach all the things that Jesus taught so that the people there at Faith Church St. Louis could apply them. But he's not doing that. So how are they supposed to know what it is they're supposed to apply that Jesus wants them to put into practice if they haven't read or they're not being taught what it is that Jesus wants them to apply and put into practice? Because he's not telling them what those things are. He's just telling them the, the punchline. Don't you think if you want them to put them into practice, you better read the whole Sermon on the Mount and maybe spend a lot of time in the teachings of Jesus so that people know 
what it is that Jesus wants him to do. Floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house. And it did not fall, for it was founded upon the what? Rock. But everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them, I will like him into a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And, and the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then Jesus ended these sayings and the people were astonished at his teachings because he taught is one having authority. Talk about two guys. One guy builds his house upon God, the word, Jesus and his love. The next guy builds his house upon the sand, same wind, same rain, but the one stood and the one fell. Now, as you see entertainers and... Uh, yeah, I know, but see, you're setting all the people up in your congregation to have their houses being blown over when the wind comes because they don't even know what Jesus said that they're supposed to be uh, putting into practice. Yeah, talk about... This isn't a slight edge. This is a, well, a, a large, well, um, falling back. You know, this is a, a large setback, a, a liability, if you would. People that rise to the top and, and you watch life get zapped out of them. We see people that we love and we go, man, how did that happen? How did they lose their talent? How, how did the mighty fall? Well, we know, number one, they didn't keep Christ the center of their life. See, if you can gain everything in the world, but you lose your soul, it's all for naught. You've got to continue to make sure that you focus around what is important. And I love what Michael said a minute ago. It's God and family. See, your family can tell you things and they'll tell you the truth. <laughs> Anybody ever had family that you're like, man, I don't even want to hang around with you because you tell me the truth. Everybody else thinks I'm great. People need to speak into your life because if not, the mighty will fall. Same wind. Same rain, same flood, but one stands, one falls. Why? It's built upon the rock. Now, I, I can tell something about you guys. It's, you know, 8.30 in the morning it was, and you came to church, you got up, you brushed your teeth or soaked your dentures, whatever it was. And you came into the house of God today to lift up the Lord, to be encouraged. You're, you're essentially saying, God, I'm going to build my life upon the rock because only that which is built upon the rock will stand the test of time. How the mighty fall. There's a book, if you're a business leader, I read a lot of business books. And there's one by Jim Collins called From Good to Great. That's a great one. Then there's yeah, it's a fine, popular level business book. There's another one by Jim Collins called How the Mighty Fall. And, and uh, again, business book. Business. Job of the pastor is to preach the word. What are you doing? And he begins to talk about the little things. Trying to give these folks kind of like a, a cheap level MBA. Things that we do that take away the slight edge, essentially, that we have in winning. In other words, while you have positive momentum in your life, while you're young, while your marriage is strong, while your business is growing, make sure you take advantage of that and keep training as hard as you did to get you here so that you can stay on top. And in the mighty will fall, he, he talks about the difference between Circuit City and Best Buy. We know that Circuit City is now gone. The two words, Best Buy, they're still here. Because they kept the main thing the main thing. Circuit City began to go outside of what was their strength zone. In other words, you got to find out what you're good at and stick with that. When they started dabbling for crying out loud, serious? Uh, you're... Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, y'all need to learn the parable of Circuit City. I mean, 
Forget the parables that Jesus told. You need to learn the important life lessons of the parable and the cautionary tale known as the failed business, known as Circuit City. Good gravy. And something that they had no business in, but they had the revenues generated through what they were good at to fund what they were not so good at. They woke up one day and the whole corporation fell and they are no more based on bad decisions. In other words, they allowed their slight edge to take them down instead of the slight edge that they had to catapult them into their future and stay strong. So again, I'll say, find out what God has called you to do and do that. Don't try to be somebody else. The Las Vegas has never called me and asked me to go beat the fire out of somebody in MTV's, you know, round one, two, and three. But then again, I, I don't think that Mike Chandler has been asked to, to speak at a lot of settings. It doesn't make me bad and him good or vice versa. It's finding out what God has called you to do. In other words, be the best you that you can be. Don't try to be somebody else and don't always be so hard on yourself. And, and also take note that life can get boring. You can say, oh, man, this is the same job I've had. Oh, this is the same business. I want to dabble over here. Sometimes when you, when you stop paying attention to the main focus, you lose the power of the concentration that you have to actually light this thing on fire. We talked about that a few weeks ago with the magnifying glass. So, again, find other people that do what you do, but they do it better than you do, and then model that behavior. Then the next point is this, is to make sure that you stick with what God has called you to do and stick with it with enthusiasm all the way through. It'll catapult you to the next level. Now, now here's the problem with life. Um, you don't see results right away. You go to the gym, you get bored, you don't stick with it. Because, I mean, I, mean, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't look like Mike Chandler. I've been to the gym for three days in a row, and I don't look like Mike. You don't see results immediately. Actually, in this book, The Slight Edge, I read it. It's one of the things that changed my, my dietary habits uh, a lot because I, I witnessed my dad die at 56 years old. Of course, the cancer was accelerated by the bad behaviors and choices that he made, but all his arteries were clogged. They were getting ready to do open-heart surgery on him. That's one of the ways that they discovered that he was not able to get open-heart surgery because his arteries were so clogged. I, I watched my aunt in her middle 50s die of heart disease. I watched my grandfather way too young die of heart disease. So in the natural, you know that, that heart disease runs in my family. But, but here's what have you done with Jesus? Where is he? Here's the way I was raised. My, my dad's dad, my grandpa, they, you, you won't believe this, but they actually had chocolate gravy. Anybody ever heard of chocolate gravy? Anybody here? Yeah, some of you. I'm glad you, you went with me on this because it's true. Just high fat everything. My aunt would drive through and we had a lot of fun. As a teenager, she had a little convertible LeBaron, and we'd drive through rallies and get a hamburger. And she's like, hey, look, David, don't get the fries here because they're better at Steak and Shake. And then we would be eating our hamburger and drive through Steak and Shake. She said, no, don't get a shake. Wait, we're going to Ted Drew's. Let's just thank God for Ted Drew's right now. But guess what? She died early because of the poor choices that she made. Now, now I, I say to you that if you went to McDonald's and you ordered a number four and you asked to supersize it, and the person before you had just ordered a number four, they go back to their table and they eat the number four and they drop dead. You would probably, if you're smart, go, I'm not sure I want to finish this burger. But see, what it is, is we continue to eat all this red meat and so on, make bad choices. And it doesn't kill us on the first day. It kills us 45 years later. It's the slight edge. So does Jesus want us to stop eating red meat? Is that the punchline here? We all need to go vegan for Jesus? 
lives, the choices that you make that catapult you into the next level. Because if you do not take charge of your own life, nobody else is going to take charge for it. And then you are the leader of your life. But oftentimes we go from leadership to leader slip. Shout that with me. Leadership to leader slip. Leader slip is this. Where in the Bible does it mention leader slip? Not familiar with that. In fact, I don't even know what the Greek or Hebrew would be for leader slip. Yes, what you were doing at one time. I watch it happen in business all the time. We're aggressive. Our income's hot. Our outgoes low. Our advertising's big. And we're rocking, rocking, rocking. We're lean, mean, fast machine. And then over time, it gets too big. And it's like a big old boat. Takes forever to turn it. We're going to make a change. Oh, oh, and a speedboat. You must continue to be agile in life because what, as Mike said a second ago, what got you here won't get you there. The people that were with you to get you to this point might not have the mental capacity or the challenge or the zeal or the fire to continue to launch you to the next level. I'm only talking to people who want to live a healthy, wealthy life. I'm only talking to people today who say, I want more out of this year. I don't want to. So Christianity is all about you living a more healthy, wealthy life. What verses say this again? I'm going to be average. I'm ready to go to the next level. Is that you today? Am I talking to the right crowd? Leadership, leader slip. My my last passage is found in, in, in Judges chapter 14, verse 1. And Samson went down. Notice that. He went down. He did what? He went down to Timnah and he saw a woman there of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came and he told his father and his mother, and he said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go get her for me as a wife. Sometimes you can see something with your natural eyes and you'll want it bad. Anybody ever saw something and you wanted it bad? Maybe a car, a hot... (laughs) Okay, so because Samson saw a woman and his heart went pitter-patter and he wanted her... For his wife, there's a spiritual principle here that we can apply. Really? A dog, a hot fudge Sunday. Come on, Ray. You're like, I, I got to have that. So he wanted it. So he told his mom and dad, I want her. Sometimes you may get what you want, but you might not want what you get. So he ends up becoming in lust, not in love, but in lust with something that wasn't supposed to be his. He married into the wrong genealogy. It took him down. We, we find it. Yeah. Um. We just did the story of Samson. Hang on a second. Did he say Judges 14? I think that's what he said. Yeah, I want to point something out here. There's a very important verse that um, I don't think that um, David Crank took the time to actually read. Let me read it to you. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. The one I want, though, the point out to you is verse 4. But uh, let me read. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. 
for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at that time. The Philistines ruled over Israel. So, yeah, it wasn't that he had, he, he you know, whatever David Crank is saying, he's totally missing the whole point. The reason why Samson had the hots for this chick is because God wanted him to have the hots for this chick because God was looking for an opportunity against the Philistines whom he was about to judge and set Israel free from being under them. Ay, ay, ay. That he continues to have this problem from leader slip to leader slip. When God wanted to catapult him forward, he's still thinking about women. So now he gets this girl named Delilah. Anybody ever heard this story? And Delilah. Be- yeah, I just read it the other day. You're going to make the same mistake or a different one. The uh, the other it was Chris Harrell uh, from uh, South Hills in Corona tried to say that this was an important story about the importance of community. See, Samson, he wouldn't have fallen for the wiles of, of the wascally Delilah if only he had community there to save him. What's going to be your point, David? He gets to play with his hair. I want to know your trade secret. I, I want to take you, you know, he, she didn't say I want to take you down. She said I want to take you out. I want to take you out to dinner. Let's hang out. He falls in lust again. And now what is supposed to be the strong man Samson with this killer body, with this killer image, with this killer ministry that was catapulted at one time, he begins to fall into leader slip. She begins to find out his secret. They find out his secret. They cut off his hair because it is a type of his anointing. Now he's ball-headed. He has no power to, to, uh, to, to, to do what God has called him to do. So now he finds himself at a grinding wheel with the horses, and he's just, they've got him tied up. He's like a big mule, and they just got him moving all the time, shucking corn. But then one day, here's the good news. The anointing of God came back on his life as he began to repent and his hair began to grow back out. Unfortunately, they poked his eyes out, true story, during this period of time so he could never see again, but he did get that anointing back. Always remember that there are consequences for this. (laughs) Really? He got the anointing back. That's the good news? You are aware that right after he gets that anointing back, it results in his death. Oh, my goodness. The sin that we did, the wages of sin is death. But the good news is, is that God in all his love, all his mercy, he's going to come back upon you and allow your hair to grow back. In other words, your business can grow again. Your, your marriage can grow. Oh, my goodness. He is so ignorant of what the story of Samson is. He doesn't know his Bible at all. Again. The relationship with that child or that loved one can grow again. But what you and I have to do is make sure we take responsibility for our action and never, ever look with our eyes and say, I want that more than I want this. Because if you'll stick with what you're called to do for the long haul with power and intensity, you will be wearing that belt of truth that God talks about in Ephesians 6. Yeah, there's nothing about truth in this sermon. By the way, let me read just Judges chapter 16 right there at the tail end here. What ends up happening uh, to uh, good old Samson after his hair starts to uh, grow back? Um, yeah, I just read this the other day. Uh, now, the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. And uh, it was by verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That's verse 22. 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. 
For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, and the, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between pillars, and Samson said, uh, said to the young man who held him, by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were among those whom he had killed during, uh, were, uh, were more than those he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and his families came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal. So, yeah, he got his anointing back. Yeah, just long enough to basically go on a suicide mission and kill a bunch of Philistines in the process. Man, you can't make this up. And you'll stand strong. And at the end of the trail, you'll be saying, hey, I'm winning as a dad. I'm winning as a mom. I'm winning as a family. And together, we're winning as a church. Give God praise today. And that's the sermon. Yep, catapult your existence. I think I'm going to catapult that sermon off into the deep and pray I never ever hear it, have to hear it again. Good night. All of that. Complete distraction. Do you think David Crank's eyes are on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of his faith? Not even close. Did David Crank point us to Jesus? No. Far from it. You see, that's what Satan wants to have happen. He doesn't want you to have a pastor who rightly preaches Christ from every passage of Scripture, who constantly placards what Jesus has done for you. Instead, Satan is very happy to give you men like David Crank or Kerry Shook or others who, well, will point you to everything except Jesus. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.